Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the, the opportunity to gather here on a Tuesday night to study your Bible. Lord, we would pray that the Word would come alive to us, that each one of us would learn something that would help alter, change our life, to strengthen us and to encourage us and edify us in the Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would be with Pastor and Tiff tonight, that you would help him to minister. We pray that you would protect and keep them as they travel. And Lord, give us a good evening here in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 13. Story of the 12 spies going into the land of Canaan. Numbers chapter 13, and let's start reading at verse 22. This is describing the spies having gone into the land of Canaan. And remember, they have just shortly come out of Egypt. They are are very soon, after leaving Egypt, leaving the bonds of slavery, they have been asked to go into the land of Canaan. And they send 12 spies in. And verse 22 says that they, the spies, ascended by the south and came unto Hebron. Got that marked in my Bible. Where this person, that person, another one, the children of Anak were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came unto the brook of Eshcol and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes and they bear it between two upon a staff. And they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook of Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land after forty days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell on the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. I want to stop there for a moment. What is the underlying assumption that God had for the children of Israel while they're waiting outside the border. Twelve spies are in there, even before the spies go in there. What does every person in the nation of Israel know about God's will for their life as a nation? They know we're supposed to be in there. Everybody understand that? They... That nation, that group of people, had a decree from God even given to Abraham for 500 years before this time. They know they're supposed to go in there. God had told Abraham, I will give unto you this land, the land of Canaan. Every place your foot treads, I'm going to give it to you and your seed after you. So God always painted the vision for Abraham that what comes out of you, your children, your grandchildren, your seed, as it multiplies, There's a special place on earth that I have for them. They're supposed to be in Canaan. So this is now the first time as a nation that they've come to that border. And even though they've sent 12 spies in there to search it out, to report back what's in there, everybody is supposed to have the assumption that 
We're supposed to be in there. And we're supposed to be in there because God, the creator of the universe, told us. He wants us in there. So in verse 28, when those ten spies come out and they say, it's really neat in there. This is the fruit that we brought out of it. It flows with milk and honey. Nevertheless, we saw something in there. We saw, and they described it as the children of Anak. Now, you need to understand, they would not use the phrase, we saw the children of Anak, unless they had some idea who Anak was or his kids. You don't tell somebody, well, I saw Mr. Gubenstein at the post office today, unless the person you're talking to happens to know somebody named Gubenstein. Then it makes sense to use, bring up that description of him, unless the hearer it's painting a picture for them. So these people knew about these giants. They knew about these people. And just to kind of cement that, keep a finger here. Let's turn to Deuteronomy real quick. Deuteronomy is the next book in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 9. <clears throat> this point is important. I'm, I'm taking time to kind of nail this tent stake down because... I think this is important. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 1. This is when God is, and Moses, is recounting what we're reading in Numbers. This is years later, and it's being recounted. Chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven. This is after they wasted 40 years in the wilderness. They're now back to the border. And Moses is telling them, um, we're, we're supposed to be in there. We know that. We screwed up, and for 40 years we walked in the wilderness until an entire generation died off. So he's speaking to them about how they got here. Verse 2, Inside there, there's a people, great and tall, the children of the Anakims, comma, whom thou knowest. Now remember, when they went in Numbers chapter 13, the first time they got there, it was only the 12 that went in there. And they just brought back word. They didn't have Polaroids. They didn't have uh, brochures and maps from in there. They just had the report of those 12. And yet, Scripture is painting the picture that all, everybody understands who's in there. I'm trying to get in your head. There's a reason those people collapsed emotionally when they heard children of Anak are in there. These Anakims, verse 2, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Verse 3, understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire, he shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before thy face so shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord hath said unto thee. Notice what verse 3 is pointing out about this whole scenario. There's giants in there. There's little old us out here. But what is verse 3 saying? God will go with us. In fact, he won't just walk every step with us. He'll go before we get there. And he'll drive them out before us. He'll bring them down before our face. Go back to Numbers chapter 13. You see, that's the promise that God had given them. Yeah, you're supposed to go in there. 
And they knew who these giants were. When the description comes out, the children of Anak are in there, they all understand. And here in Numbers 13, back to verse 29, let's finish the description that the spies give. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb, he is one of the twelve spies, he stilled, that means he calmed the people before Moses. If he stilled them or calmed them, they must have been unstilled. They must have been emotionally distraught. He gets up before them and tries to calm them. And he says in the middle of that verse, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. You've got to ask yourself questions when you read your Bible. What's in Caleb's mind that makes him use the words, We're well able to kick these people? Versus the ten spies that said there's no chance. They'll eat us and they'll eat our kids. And remember, that they were giants. We're not just saying they were big people like Ireland's and Fangmire's. They were giants. 10, 12, 13 foot, something like that. They were enormous. Humanly speaking, there, there was reason for the Israelites to be afraid of them. But what separates Caleb? Is this guy crazy? Does he not understand how big they are? He, he went in there. He was one of them. He saw But he says, we're well able. Verse 31, But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an... What's your Bible use as an adjective there? What kind of a report? An evil report, the King James says. Think of that. God describes the language that those ten spies used to melt the heart of the people, to discourage them, God called that evil. God is very big on encouragement. And being accurate. He said what those people did when they got it in the heart of the people to quit, he called that evil. The land through which we have gone to search it, it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, the question I have that we've, we've now hopefully accurately painted the picture of what was taking place in Canaan and outside of the border where Israel was standing and the decree that God had given those people, we've got to ask now a question. Did God know there were giants in there? Well, that's a pretty easy question. Of course he does. He knows all those things. If he knew that those giants were in there, and at the same time told Israel, I want you to go in there, it's yours. What's the assumption on God's side concerning Israel? Can they do it? See what I'm trying to get at? If God knows they're in there, he knows everything. And he told those people to get in there and take it. Clearly, in between the lines, there's a message from God. You are able to do this. That's what I'm trying to get at. Because you see, in your life, you may have things that when you look at with your eyes, you think, well, I mean, we, we can't do that. 
Nobody in my family's ever done something like that. I, God may be telling, I mean, I feel like he's telling me to do such and such. Or I feel inspired by the word that God has given me kind of a decree. I'm supposed to go in this route in my life. But man, that looks hard. How am I going to do that? If God is sending you, if God is telling you to do it, what does that mean? It means of course you can do it. He wouldn't tell you to do it unless he knows you have the strength to do it. Now, there's a couple of key ingredients. There's a couple of key points of truth about this. This guy Joshua, or Caleb, and his friend Joshua, who were the two guys that came out, that told everybody, absolutely, let's go at once. Before we even think about it, just get up, pack your stuff, let's go. They got some more words here in chapter 14, and look at verse 7. Verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. They're painting a good picture, aren't they? Next phrase is the most important phrase that they utter. Verse 8, If the Lord delight in us. If the Lord delight in us. What's another way to say that? If God's on our side. If God be for us, then He will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. So what's going on in the minds of Joshua and Caleb? There's only one thing they're considering. They're not looking at their own strength. They're not thinking, when's the last time I killed a giant and Dad didn't have any pictures of doing that. They'd never thought that way. All they thought was, is God in my back pocket? Because if he is, what other consideration is there? What other consideration? Now remember what these people have just seen. They saw the ten plagues in Egypt, which no human eye has ever seen since. Plagues of lice, frogs, darkness. It rained hailstones of fire. Lightning ran along the ground. It killed everything that was outdoors. Animals, beasts, people. Whoever was outside in that died. Then they leave Egypt and the Red Sea parts form. They walk through the bottom of the ocean. Can you imagine? The, get to the other side and the seashells you collected from the bottom of the Dadgum Ocean where it was dry down there. You walked on it. They saw that with their eyes. The wall of water on side. And now God is asking them, listen, you know you're supposed to be in there. Now get in there. Well, we, 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 we can't go in there. There's, there's giants in there. See, they stopped thinking that that God that had been with them, that he was still with them. Joshua and Caleb haven't. All they say is, if God's with us, if he delights in us, what does it matter? He will take care of whatever is in there. Now, we're going to follow through the scripture. Something that starts right here in Numbers chapter 13, that the children of Anak, the Anakims, are in there. And since they don't go in there, but God turns them around and says, all right, you don't, you don't want to obey me? Fine. We're going to walk 40 years in the wilderness until this entire generation who refused, until we bury every one of you in the sand. And I'll raise your kids up, and them, the ones that you thought would get eaten, like grasshoppers, I'll take them in, and we will go kill the giants. Because they didn't go in there, and God clearly had gave them instruction. You go in there and clean them out. 
Remember, that's a, something we deal with in the Christian world right now, is there are people who are now offended. People have been sitting in churches that are offended at what they call the Old Testament God. Somebody who would tell his people to do what? To, I mean, kill every one of them? <laughs> I thought he was a loving God. I thought Jesus hugged people that had done wrong. Well, he, he did. But he, there's a reason that these giants needed to be wiped out. And we're not going to get into that. We're not even going to touch on it. But there's a specific reason. God wanted every one of them gone. This is the same God that told Noah, you build a boat because all these people, they all have to be wiped out. See, whether you like that or not, I don't think we can understand the evil that was going on back there. You don't get offended at God, for goodness sake. And this is mostly for the people listening on the tape. I'm not talking, you know, I don't have any examples of you guys being offended at God. But there are people out there that get offended reading their Bible and think, well, I can't serve a God that would do that. See, he makes the rules. He also knows what's going to happen when this stuff multiplies and gets into other cultures and societies. He told the Israelites, I don't want nothing left of them. Get rid of them. Now they didn't. And now we're going to follow through in our Bible and see the results of this. Let's go to Joshua. Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the 40 years in the wilderness has taken place. That whole generation is gone. Moses has even just died that God took him home. And now Joshua's in charge, and he is going to be in charge to take them across the Jordan River, and in they're going. Joshua chapter 11, and starting at verse 21, it's telling us, this whole chapter is telling about the people, the nations, the cities, the cultures that Joshua has been instructed to wipe out. Joshua 11, verse 21, and at that time, Joshua excuse me, came Joshua and cut off the Anakims from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. For somebody who might be out there listening, you need to understand, Joshua is doing exactly what God told him to do right there. Exactly. And actually, God was mad that it wasn't done 40 years earlier. Next verse. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel, except where? Three places, in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, there remained. So it sounds like Joshua did a pretty good job. I mean, he went after them. But there were three of these places where he did not get to. That they either passed by, they put it on the back burner, got distracted, or humanly it was physically impossible to get to him. At the, whatever it was, in the end, Joshua did not take care of these three spots. Gaza, Gath, Ashdod. Now, we always need to apply this stuff to our life. See, God had told those Israelites of something that they were supposed to take care of, that group of people, the Anakims. Get rid of them. Joshua does a pretty good job, but he doesn't quite get them all. What's in your life that you know? I mean, I, maybe I've got an anger problem or 
Maybe I, I do such and such, and I've known about it my whole life, but I've, I've just I've left it alone. I mean, I've never really rolled up my sleeves and went after that part of my life that I should take care of. Because you see, it's possible, sometimes likely, that that's going to come back at a bad time. Things that God wants us, shows us, points out to us in our life that we need to take care of, rub those sharp edges off, get the sandpaper of the Holy Spirit and just clean it. If you don't, you get stuff like this. Let's go to 1 Samuel. We have went through Moses and Joshua's generation. Now we're going several generations at least down 1 Samuel chapter 17, and this is David's time. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle, sounds like war, in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Verse 4. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from where? Now we just read back there in Numbers, excuse me, in Joshua, that Joshua did a pretty good job, cleaned out the Anakims, except he left three places. There was Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And here, now generations later, these Philistines have some giant, and where is he from? He, he's one of those descendants of the Anakims. You realize David would not have had to do this had Moses, Joshua, those generations taken care of what God had told them to do. This is a long time, and they're still dealing with this issue, this problem. Verse 4, there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And now at verse 5 and 6 and 7, it tells us just how monstrous this guy was. He was one of those giants. You know, you don't, don't read your Bible and think that this is just the first appearing of somebody like this. Not at all. Not at all. Israel had been dealing with this kind of stuff for a while. They dealt with it when those 12 spies went in. I mean, they were confronted with it. They didn't deal with it at that time. They march in the wilderness for 40 years, and they come back, and who is still waiting there in Canaan? Same problem. We're going to get to something at the end of this Bible study that if there's a problem in your life with something, maybe it's a character issue, Something you can deal with. You have the power to take care of. If you don't do it, there's a chance it's always going to be waiting. Always in there, ready to, at the worst time, rear its ugly head and do some real damage. When God shows us something, we need to deal with it, take care of it. Um, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. Have you ever wondered why God favored David the way that he did? I mean, you think about this. God made a promise to Eve that after they sinned that he told the serpent, one day there's going to come something from that woman, Eve, and he's going to crush your head. 
And then some generations later, he narrows that down from the whole species of man of Adam and Eve down to Abraham's line. And he tells Abraham, your seed has this promise on it. And God visits that same promise to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then Jacob has these 12 kids, 12 tribes. And then once in the line of Judah, when David comes along, God gets really specific and he says, it's, it's your family, David. The Messiah will be the seed of David. What was so special about David that God would make that promise to him? See, the New Testament starts out with the words. These are the generations of Jesus Christ. He was the son of Abraham, comma, the son of David. God points out, I'm keeping my promise. I made a promise to Abraham and to David that whoever this person is, he'd come through them. So to start out the description of Jesus, it goes back to the promise God made to those two guys 2,500 years before. To make sure everybody understands, keeping my promise. Why? Why did he make the promise to Abraham? We're leaving that question alone. Why David? I'll tell you one thing. Probably, partially, at least in part, the answer is what this David did to Goliath. David went after Goliath and his family that Joshua and Moses never took care of. There was a problem, a lingering problem in the nation of Israel that David wasn't scared of. He volunteered. He went before the king and said, King, you just please just get out of the way. When I keep my father's sheep, a lion and a bear came out. This guy will be just like him. I'll handle him. I'll take care of him. And he does. We all look at just the miracle of, I mean, he beat him. But what about the guts to even try? The guts to want to get out there. Lord uh, Saul, just please let me have a shot at this clown. That was his attitude. Part of the reason God was, had such a blessing on David's life is the problem that he went out to solve for the nation that God had promised. He's going to take care of this problem. We're in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 21. Uh, let's see, I didn't... Back there, where did I write? 2 Samuel 21 and verse 15. 21, verse 15. Moreover, the Philistines, that's who Goliath was a part of. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down and his servants with him and fought with the Philistines, and David waxed faint. He's tired. And Ishbi Benab, which was of the sons of the giant, Who's the giant? Goliath. David killed Goliath in David's youth. Now David is in his middle age. He's a warrior. He's fighting. And who's he now going after? The son of Goliath. The weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight. He being girded with a new sword thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zerui, secured him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the, the light of Israel. They thought, if our quarterback gets killed, we're all going down. The captain of the boat, David, we've got to make sure you're okay. Stay back. So these guys start to take things and matter into their own hands. Verse 18, 
And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with who? The Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushathite slew Saph, which was of the sons of the giant. This is another son of Goliath that David and his men are going after. Verse 19. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of this guy, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's being. We've killed two of his kids. Now Goliath's brother. Verse 20. And there was yet a battle at Gath where was a man of great stature. Do you see how they're all giants? There was a problem with these people, the children of Anak, the giants, their descendants. And God wanted them taken care of a long time ago. And Guess who's making every attempt to do it in his time? David. Going after these guys. There was a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers, and every foot six toes, four and twenty in number, and he also was born... To the giant. This is the third son of Goliath. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimea, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Almost everybody thinks David, he faced that giant and then it was just, well, it was basically, it was just champagne and caviar and a recliner. Nope. Guy spent a good portion of his life going after these people, these giants. He and his men. And the Bible records that David hunted these guys down to take care of a problem that God had told his nation Israel to take care of a long time ago. Now, I don't know of everything, the reasoning, why God favored David the way that he did. David was certainly, certainly not perfect, made some mistakes, and there's the Bible verse that says he was a man after God's own heart. But I often wonder about that. What's the definition of that? What are the specifics of what was in God's heart that was in it in David's heart? Well, partly, I think, David's the one guy that went after these people. And his men that he inspired were going after them to take care of this problem. Now, I find it very, very, very interesting that even to today, you got out a map. You ever hear on the news the problem that Israel has with their neighbors, even inside their own borders over there? There is, today, you can hear about bombings, slayings, terrorist attacks from Gaza, Ashdod, the West Bank. The three places that Joshua couldn't quite get to, or didn't quite get to, to this day, 4,000 years later almost, they are still dealing with problems. Big problems. I find that very interesting. I don't have anything to add to that, no answers, but it just rolls around. At 3 in the morning, you wake up. <laughs> how, how, how is that? What would have happened if Joshua would have taken care of that? Would they, would they have those issues over there? Anyway, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18 now. To the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18. Now what we've just looked at, <clears throat> we have 
kind of painted a picture of God certainly expected Israel to deal with those giants from the very beginning. They had just come out of Egypt. They had a slave mentality and they they were not warriors by nature. They hadn't learned it. And yet, God expected them to go into Canaan where God knows there's giants. He's told His people, get in there. Which clearly leads me to believe God expected them to take care of those giants. What in every person's life? See, to me, the question is, we hear about, well, God will do certain things for me, and, and He will. He splits the Red Sea. You can't do that on your own. But do you have a part in it? Is there a part that we have to do? What was the Israelites' part when it came to those giants? Well, exactly, specifically, we're never going to know because they never went in there. We won't know if God would have had thunderbolts come out of heaven or if, like he said in Deuteronomy, I'll send even hornets ahead of you that will drive those people out. Can you imagine that? God sent, See, there have been such things as killer hornets before. Only they were sent from heaven. God would send in there to drive people out. What I'm getting at is there's a part for us that we're supposed to do, and, and then there's that part that God takes care of that we can't. But clearly, what we've seen in the record here, God does not grab His people by the, by the back of the neck and force them across that border into Canaan. You understand? You may have a promised land in your life waiting for you. But I think some steps are required on your side and on and my side, my, my life. Things I can control. And if it's in my control, guess who will not force it on me? Who will not force me to make the right decision? The Father. God will not force me. If there's something in my power, that's in my power. He has left that to me. But when I step out in faith and I start down a certain road and I run into obstacles where i got to have Him, that's when He jumps in. That's when He steps in to road grade, take a bulldozer and move those obstacles out of the way. But sometimes we never see those obstacles move because we never take that step toward it. We never engage it. We just leave it there. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever things who? You. This is Jesus talking. He's talking to His disciples. By extension, He's talking to you. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever things you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Have you ever wondered what that verse meant? I mean, sometimes I read that and think, I can reach in heaven and help God loose something or bind something up. No, I can't be that. I can't even get to heaven. I'm here on the earth. What's this verse saying? Whatever I take in my own power, my own decision-making, I take authority over, I make an attempt to bind it in my life, what will God do on His end? From As far as heaven's concerned, He'll bind it. See, God has His place there in heaven. And I think that at least partly, I'm not saying I know everything that this verse is saying, but in part it is saying that when I take authority, 
When I take initiative to do something in my life to go after some giants, God does on His end, from heaven, from where He is. But if, what if I don't do anything about it? What if I don't bind or loose it? What if I just leave that problem alone and let it grow and fester? Guess what God will do? He'll fold His hands, and He'll sit back, and He'll wonder, when are you coming back to take care of this? Because if there are things in our power that we can do, He's not asking us to take care of everything, but we need to initiate it. Step out in faith. Take a step or two. Maybe do like David did and run toward that giant with your sling twirling. Then when you do that, what is this verse saying? That in, on God's end in heaven, he'll look down and as far as he's concerned, taken care of. Whatever you, see that's what it starts with. Whatever you here on earth bind, he'll bind in heaven. Whatever you loose here on earth, and you have to do it first. That's the order Jesus spoke it. You loose it, and then on God's end, I'm right there with you, buddy, and I'll loose it on my end. See, sometimes we all think, man, I just, I've been waiting for 25 years. I just, why won't God take care of that issue? He might be saying the exact same thing about you. Possible. I don't know the specifics of your life, and your problems. But there are things that he wants us to do. We step out by faith and we go after it, not having to know just how that mountain is going to get removed, but take a shovel and start digging at it. And God will somehow, maybe, he'll put a bulldozer in your hand that your shovel starts throwing a lot bigger chunks. And pretty soon, gone. God has helped you get rid of that thing. But this verse and a lot of others seem to paint the picture that in everything, God puts opportunities in front of us, but then there are things that we clearly have to initiate. Whatever we bind, God will bind. Whatever we loose, God will loose it in heaven. Finish this. I want to go all the way back to Joshua. Joshua chapter 14. You can't study that story of those spies. Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua chapter 14. You can't study those spies without ending with this guy Caleb. Pity Wampus. Joshua chapter 14. They've pretty much conquered stuff at least in what they're, what they're going after. Now it's time to divide it up. And at, at this point, they've been in the land, I'm, I think, maybe five years, kicking these people out of the land, destroying, conquering. And this guy, Caleb, and remember what he's done for the last 40 years. He went in and he saw, with the 12 spies, he was one of them, he saw how great it was. But when he came out, the 10 spies convinced the people, we can't do it. And what was the was the consequence of that? That everybody, including Joshua and Caleb, had to do what? Walk around in the wilderness for 40 years, knowing Caleb has to know, I saw what was in there, that, that's mine. God promised that to us, and here I am out here with these complainers, and we're out here in the desert. So now when they finally get back in there and they're conquering, look what Caleb says in verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua, because he's the leader, 
And Caleb the son of Jephunneh, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, You know the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. So he's saying, you remember what Moses told, what God told Moses about us, Joshua and Caleb. He gave Moses a command. God told Moses, there's something special about Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb is reminding Joshua about this. Verse 7, he says, 40 years old was I, when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Guts. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. So what this is saying is that when Joshua and Caleb came out, and the ten spies report ruled the day, and it got in the heart of the people, and they said, we ain't going in. When they turned away from Canaan and started marching in the wilderness, what did Moses tell those two, Joshua and Caleb? That, you guys just remember, we're coming back. And the land that your feet trotted on while you were in there, it's yours. You keep your heart. You remember this. When we get back here, it's yours. So for 40 years, they're marching around with those complainers in that desert, and they know they could be in the land of milk and honey. So when they come back, this is now Caleb saying, remember what Moses told us. Look at verse 10. And now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive as he said these 45 years. Even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain. Love that phrase. He's 85, and what does he want? He wants a mountain to conquer. This is why Joshua and Caleb had a, this is the evidence that they had a different spirit. All they wanted was a chance to get at those giants. That's all they wanted. Now therefore give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day. See, God had made a promise to him. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. Here's the key. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. What is clearly? Clearly, there's an if there, but what's clearly in Caleb's mind and in his heart? Concerning the question, is God with him? Clearly he thinks God is with him. He's begging, he's, he's demanding, Joshua, give me this mountain. See, in his mind, all he thinks about is, God's on my side. He doesn't know how he's going to kill those giants. There's no specifics. There's no details. He doesn't need the details. The only detail he knows is, 
God is in my back pocket. And when I go after this mountain, he'll, God will find a way. But Caleb had to take the initiative. You see that? Caleb has to go to Joshua. He has to demand it. He has to take possession and he goes in there. Then it's God's turn to bind and to loose from heaven where God looks down and he starts working because he's got a guy in faith doing what he told him he would do. Verse 13, And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron for an inheritance. You know why you live in Hebron? It's biblical. You're supposed to kick the Ireland's out of your block. Get the giants out. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day. Why? Because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Great story. This guy Caleb held on for 40 years to a promise that he knew God had given him. And he was never one time surrounded by encouragement, ever. Joshua and Moses were out there leading. He's back in the pack with the people. Who's he surrounded by? A bunch of people who said, we can't do it. They'll they'll kill us. They'll eat us. And because of their disbelief, he had to eat the reward with them of wandering in the wilderness. Did that ever get inside of him and quench the fire of that mountain's mine? That's what I love about Caleb. After 40 years of being surrounded by nincompoops, spiritual pygmies, Caleb grabs Joshua by the shirt coat and says, you give me this mountain. It's mine. God promised me this. You get an insight into that, what was going in his mind for 40 years walking. Part of me thinks, they, they, after a while, I'll stay away from that guy. He, he's, a little, he's a little spicy. Somebody gets to complaining in his area, staff comes up the back of your head. You wake up in the sand. Caleb had a different spirit in him. He knew God's on our side. But in his heart, he knew, I've got to take this step. The mountain isn't going to be there with a big red bow on it, and God just pulled the bow off for me. I've got to go. I've got to take the initiative, and I've got to do what my part is. Once you start doing that, that's when you see God step in and do His part. Father, we pray, Lord, we pray, Father, that the things that we have seen in this story, that they would melt into our life. We pray, Father, that you would use this to strengthen and to encourage each one of us to conquer the mountains that might be in our life that are standing before us. Lord, we pray for Pastor and Tiffany. We pray that you would strengthen and encourage and that you would keep them with all diligence. We pray, Father, that we would see them in health and in hope in a short time. Thank you for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.